What is this about? It, this is about different, different factors that can pr uh, provoke a problem or exert some influence on the development of the embryo. And that influence is usually in terms of defects, malformations, especially when embryos are exposed in the first trimester. Chemicals, different types of chemicals, like occupational exposure, or medications, different types of drugs, are considered teratogens. The drugs, among the drugs, alcohol is one of the most serious because it provokes, a, it, it, it's a cause of this problem called fetal alcohol syndrome, which consists in uh, babies that are born with very low weight and with a series of malformations. But other problems, other factors include diseases like viral diseases, excessive amount of hormones may happen, like people with hyperthyroidism or people with hypothyroidism, some antibiotics, other recreational drugs like cocaine, and a long list of chemical substances that can produce uh, defects in the development. And sometimes it's hard to determine if a problem, a defect, is caused by something. Because this is like some malformation is detected by ultrasound, like at the at the end of the pregnancy or during the pregnancy or after birth and sometimes we are not able to, to know what the cause was. Sometimes we know the patient had some disease or received some medication during pregnancy and we say, well, this is a risk and it, some malformation may happen. But sometimes it happens and we don't know. Sometimes maybe radiation from unknown source. That's the reason why in different places where x-rays are taken, for instance, you see all types of warnings and um, uh, banners that say, if you are pregnant, please let us know, or if you're pregnant, don't be close to this area, or don't go beyond this door because of the presence of radiation. So another thing is cigarette smoking. Also will make uh, babies with very low weight and a series of problems like cardiac abnormalities and uh, high mortality rates. High mortality rates because the serious conditions of the heart that cannot be compatible with life. That's why it's not advisable at all that pregnant women don't drink alcohol nor smoke. Uh, now, sometimes you see people smoking and drinking during pregnancy and nothing happened. Well, lucky but if you do and something happens then you regret doing it so it's better to say zero the recommendation is zero and there's no reason for for doing it. ionizing radiation this is x-rays x-rays are um, produce mutations in the dna and problems may happen in the first trimester if the mother is exposed to radiation like x-rays that's another thing, when, during pregnancy, x-rays are not advised at all. Unless it's absolutely necessary, in some cases, it can be done. If there's no other possible way of diagnosing something. But usually there are many other ways to diagnose and we avoid the x-rays 
as much as possible. Now, in theory, the amount of radiation that is minimal to cause a malformation, in theory, is equivalent to it's equivalent of taking about 50 x-rays and nobody takes 50 x-rays but as I say in theory because you never know just one or two x-rays may cause a mutation and you have a problem a defect or abnormality that's why its recommendation is zero unless it's absolutely necessary which is not common is rare Problems of mental retardation, microcephaly, which is, which is small head, stands for small head, and therefore a small development, lack of development of the nervous system sometimes. Or the different types of skeletal problems and deformities. Professor, yes. What's the difference between microcephaly and anencephaly? Microcephaly and anencephaly. The difference is microcephaly is a small, uh, Head, that means the cranium is small, and therefore the brain does not develop completely sometimes. But anencephaly is the lack of development of the head. There's actually no development of the cranium and lack of development of the nervous tissue, the brain. And babies with anencephaly, they are not going to survive more than hours, usually. Sometimes they die before birth in the uterus. Uh, but if they are born, they live for a few hours afterwards because they have no brain. The brain is completely developed. And therefore, many reflexes, many adjustments cannot be made after, uh, after birth. <coughs> Prenatal diagnostic test. That's why there's a series of ways to diagnose this during the pregnancy. That's one of the reasons of having ultrasounds during the pregnancy. One at the first trimester and another one in the second or third trimester, at least two, to see the, the development and see if everything is fine. And usually detected some abnormalities that can be seen on ultrasound. That's not a 100% guarantee sometimes. Sometimes ultrasound says everything is going fine, but then after birth there's some abnormalities. Why was not detected on ultrasound? But not all of them may be detected, sometimes not seen. And even the sex of the baby sometimes is hard to determine. Some babies, they, they don't like to be exposed too much and they cover it up with one lower limb and they never show it clear. But uh, it usually some things are detected in the organs, the kidneys, the brain, uh, important problems. Now the other reason why ultrasound is useful is to determine the fetal age because some women, they don't remember the last menstrual period, and we're not able to make a good estimation or calculation. And sometimes they, 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 there's no matching. According to the last menstrual period, they should have like five months, and there's almost no belly. And you say, take the ultrasound, and it's like just three months. And it's okay, what is more precise and more accurate what the ultrasound says? That's what it counts. The last menstrual period is not an accurate uh, factor to, uh, to measure or estimate the, the, the fetal age. And to confirm pregnancy, determine the position, the final position, or identify multiple pregnancies, which can be seen clearly with the ultrasound. This one example of an ultrasound. <coughs> <coughs> 
with um, CRL. This is a crown rear lens. You actually measure this distance and there are tables that say what is the age, what is the fetal age or gestational age at, each, at different lengths. And during the first trimester, this is our gestational age and that is shown up here, 12 weeks and three days. With that measurement, and we can establish according to tables with a very good uh, approximation and estimation uh, the gestational age. And this is something that counts. Let's say someone comes and they don't know, they don't remember the last menstrual period. We take an ultrasound and we take this age as the official age. And we can determine the expected date of birth and um, follow the development. Twins are seen here in different sacs or amniotic sacs. And there are different, different ways that the twins can develop. One way is that two eggs are ovulated. Usually, normally, only one egg is ovulated every month, but sometimes there are two. And if there are sperm around, well, two eggs will be fertilized and you have two, two zygotes, two babies. But sometimes, and this is uh, something that is not completely explained, sometimes only one egg is ovulated, that egg is fertilized, only one, but then on its way to the uterus, before implantation, it splits in two. It splits in two and get two implanted um, embryos in the uterus. That's what we, call, what we call the identical twins, the ones that look alike very much. Fraternal twins are the ones that come from two eggs and two sperm, but identical it's only one egg that at some point it gets, it splits. There's not actually a good explanation for that. We see that it happens, but there's not a reason why that happens. It is related to genetic factors like it runs in families. If someone had twins, identical twins in the family, the chance that other people in the family had twins is, uh, is high. And the ultrasound is more, um, even more developed nowadays, we have 3D and 4D ultrasound, where we can see the shape of the, of the baby, and we can see the baby's face, and uh, besides being so um, amazing, and the parents get uh, very excited to see their the face of the babies, and, and even some gestures and movements, here we can diagnose problems. This is a problem of cleft lip, this is called cleft lip and cleft palate. Sometimes there's a deficit in the development of the lip, upper lip, and the palate. And we can diagnose that with ultrasound. The advantage of this is that we know, we know that we have a baby with this defect and we can schedule the surgery for repairing this. And it's usually not done right away after birth, but uh, it gives you time to prepare, and this is something that is fixed completely. A good plastic surgeon can fix this completely, and development goes very well, and it's early, early you fix this, there will be less scar. And there are people that had this uh, 
they were born with this and they had a repair and almost no trace. You see barely a little line there. And everything is, is going fine. So that's very good for the ultrasound. It's a very good thing the ultrasound. We can diagnose this early and schedule the, um, the surgical repair. And besides ultrasound, there are other ways, other types of diagnostic tests that help to detect problems. Amniocentesis is one of them. This is a procedure by which we take a sample of amniotic fluid, we get a needle, a syringe, and we just go through the abdomen, through the wall of the uterus, and reach the amniotic sac, which contains the fluid. And this is good to detect genetic abnormalities. How we do it? Well, you just get a sample of the amniotic fluid, since the baby is in the fluid, it's actually kind of floating in the fluid, where the fluid will contain cells, cells of the skin of the baby, cells from the mouth, cells from the inside. And we get those cells and do a genetic study, and we can detect abnormalities. This is performed, it can be performed as early as 14 weeks of development, so it'll be like between third and fourth month of pregnancy. And, of course, the ultrasound is used to guide the needle because uh, we can just poke the baby's body with the, with the needle. Which doesn't happen because we use ultrasound in this way and we know where there is a good window of amniotic fluid, so that's where we put the needle. And it's a very long needle, enough, long enough to reach the inside of the uterus. And there's no problem for bleeding or any other complications because it's like, it's just like an injection. Just the difference is that we get the fluid. This is a more invasive procedure. This is called chorionic villus, uh, villus sampling. This is performed earlier like eight or ten weeks of pregnancy and NASA is more invasive because what we do is to insert a catheter through the vagina and through the cervix and collect a sample from the chorionic villi from the chorionic villi so that means the placenta we reach the, just the border of the placenta and take a little sample of the cells from there to identify genetic defects they're the same the same idea Now, amniocentesis and chorionic velus sampling can be combined sometimes. We get fluid and at the same time we get tissue from the, from the placenta. And here we see the catheter going through the vagina, through the cervix, and getting a piece of the chorion or border of the placenta. And we get uh, uh, cells from the chorion. That's a fetal part of the placenta, as we said in the question of the quiz. That's a fetal part of the placenta, so we're going to get fetal cells. So the same cells that we get from the amniotic fluid. Sometimes it's better quality. Sometimes the amniotic fluid won't give you much cells. But the chorionic uh, villi will give you certainly good cells for diagnosis. The only problem is this more invasive, maybe more bleeding, and uh, um, that's a different type of uh, care after the procedure. Non-invasive tests include 
measurement of alpha fetoprotein, maternal alpha fetoprotein. And this is obtained from the mother and the blood. The alpha fetoprotein, or AFP, is a substance that the fetus produces and it reaches the highest levels at a week 12 to 15. We can measure this at that time. But it's supposed to decline. The levels are low and they go to zero after the 16th week of pregnancy. So if we get the alpha fetoprotein in someone with 23 or 24 weeks of pregnancy, that means that there's a problem in the development of the baby. And what the problem usually is, is a neural tube defect, nervous system. Uh, kids with anencephaly, lack of development of the brain, they have high levels of alpha fetoprotein after the 16 weeks. And anencephaly is just one type of problem of the nervous system. There are many other problems of the neural tube. Remember, the nervous system develops from a single tube. So that's where the problem happens. Uh, and we can detect that, measuring this in the blood of the mother. These are the different ways that these neural tube defects are um, different variations of neural tube defects. Initially, and we talk about this on Tuesday, it's a trilaminar embryo. It's a flat disc, but then it folds. It folds and we have a closed environment with a neural tube developed. And that neural tube is supposed to close completely, but sometimes that doesn't happen. This is a different view of that trilaminar embryo. And these little segments are showing the vertebrae and the different levels of the spinal cord. Well, there are different types. One of them is anencephaly that you see here is lack of development of the brain actually and also lack of development of the skin and bones of the uh, of the cranium and there are others like open spina bifida which is a lack of closure of the tube of the neural tube at the level of the thoracic spine and actually we see exposure complete exposure of the spinal cord sometimes or the meninges the dura mater, which is surrounding the spinal cord, it shows like a small cyst in the thorax, in the thoracic part of the, uh, of the spine. And there are many other defects, like we see here, they have different names. Close spina bifida, it is covered by skin. This spina bifida can be corrected with surgery after birth, in most of the cases, if the Nervous function is not compromised, they have good prognosis, but the other ones are not a good prognosis, anencephaly, anencephaly, or encephalocele, because it involves the brain, the development of the brain. And those babies usually live, if they are born, they live for a few hours. Sometimes some days, but not more than that. Okay, so that was, and it's a very big field of teratogens. Uh, <coughs> where the main point is to prevent, to prevent and diagnose early. So we can repair whatever is repairable, can be scheduled and repaired quickly after birth. And even during pregnancy, there are some surgeries that are performed intrauterus. Um, so the next part is to talk about labor.
when the pregnancy reaches 40 weeks of development or 40 weeks plus two or minus two weeks approximately, contractions of the uterus will start. And that's what we call labor. Estrogen, levels of estrogen will rise at the end of the pregnancy and will overcome the effect of progesterone. The progesterone, one of the effects of progesterone is to inhibit uterine contraction. Um, progesterone is used also in some cases of miscarriages as a prevent, as to prevent uterine contractions. And miscarriages, what happens is for different reasons, the zygoblastocyst, the embryo is not developing properly and uh, the placenta is not well developed and struggles to implant and develop and the uterus starts to contract to eliminate the uh, uh, embryo and placenta which is not well developed. But sometimes progesterone is given as treatment to prevent or block, inhibit urinary contractions, and that helps in some cases. Estrogen, at the end of the pregnancy, increases and prevents overcome the inhibiting effect of progesterone. So the uterus can start contracting. And at the same time, the estrogens in high levels will make the cells of the uterus produce oxytocin receptors. Receptors for this hormone, oxytocin. The oxytocin is that hormone produced in the hypothalamus and comes to the posterior pituitary gland and has an effect, promote contractions of the uterus. So more receptors, the uterus become more sensitive to contractions induced by oxytocin. Oxytocin is released and there's a lot of receptors in the uterine cells and they contract effectively. Relaxing is also produced by the placenta to help to dilate the cervix. That's one of the effects of the relaxing besides helping to increase the flexibility of the pubic uh, joint. And once the labor starts, it's a positive feedback mechanism that makes the labor gets uh, uh, more stronger and the uterine contraction are stronger and uh, we can describe up to three different stages of the labor. Labor has to be diagnosed first and we have to differentiate what true labor is from false labor. False labor is defined as irregular contractions irregular contractions of the uterus. and labor, the uterine contractions occur at regular intervals. It's very common that in the emergency rooms, especially the uh, pregnant women that are having their first baby, uh, they show up very, very quickly. As soon as they feel contractions, they come to the emergency room and say, it's time. But then after the examination, we determine that the, it's, a, it's not a true labor, it's a false labor. There are irregular contractions. And so now it's not time yet. But I have contractions, yeah, but we have to measure the frequency. If it happens every two minutes, every two minutes and a half, two minutes, at a regular frequency, during half an hour, and they don't change the frequency and it stays like that, or increasing in strength, that's true labor. But if after 10 minutes the contractions 
go away, disappear and fade, that was a false labor. Which means, it means that labor is coming, of course. Labor will start at any moment, but not yet. And so usually they are advised to go back home, get some food, have some rest, be prepared, get ready for true labor, and uh, as soon as the contractions get more frequent, they come to the emergency or to be admitted. Um, sometimes it's hard because uh, women are very anxious and there's no, I'm staying, I'm staying, I'm staying, but uh, there are different ways that we can handle that uh, sometimes. But first we have to differentiate what true labor is from false labor. And once the labor starts, once the labor starts, it goes with three stages. The first stage is called dilation. In dilation, the cervix will dilate. The cervix will open completely. From being closed, it dilates and opens up to 10 centimeters. Second stage is expulsion. So that's when the baby comes through the cervix, through the vagina, and comes out. And third, the placental stage, which after the baby, the placenta will be removed or exposed. Stage one, dilation, is measured from the time of the onset of labor, which sometimes is hard to determine, to complete dilation of the cervix. And during this time, that can last up to 12 hours. Sometimes it's very short. Some women have it in three or four hours. Sometimes in two hours. But sometimes they last at 10, 12 hours. The maximum time in the first pregnancy is up to 15, 17 hours. And the dilation of the cervix goes very slow and progressively from zero to 10 centimeters. How we measure this? Well, usually the, the, the obstetricians, they measure this with a physical examination, with a vaginal examination. And they don't use any ruler to that or measurement, like measuring centimeters. What they do is an estimation. And at the end, when they feel no cervix around the head of the baby, which is coming down, then they say it's completely dilated or it's 10 centimeters. And the diameter of the head of the baby from both parietal bones, which is called biparietal diameter, it's 9.5 centimeters. So that's exactly the amount that is needed for um, the second stage. Here in the picture we see a stage of dilation and the uh, uh, cervix is almost completely dilated. And at the same time that the cervix dilates, it gets very thin. If you go and see the models that we are studying, you see the cervix, actually the walls of the cervix are very thick. Well, that gets very thin, they almost disappear. So there's two things, dilate and thinning of the cervix. Second stage is the expulsion. Contractions make the baby come through the pelvic canal and go through the cervix. And remember, as, as long as the baby's head is pushing against the cervix, that is a stimulus for more production of oxytocin and therefore stronger contractions. That's what the positive feedback mechanism is. Once the head comes out through the vagina and uh, the rest of the body will just follow without any additional effort. The hardest part is the head coming, coming through. After that, the, the, the body will just come by different movements. 
And the pelvic canal is designed in such a way that the head of the baby has to rotate and follow certain movements. First the shoulder, the other shoulder, and the whole body is out. And that happens very quick. In terms of one minute, all the baby will be out. We don't have to force that. If we are uh, helping for delivery, we just have to wait and hold the baby. Sometimes we have to help a little bit, but most of the things that you can do there is help the baby and hold it and uh, then cut the umbilical cord. Third stage is a placental stage, which happens after 5 to 30 minutes after birth. And the placenta is eliminated by uterine contractions. The uterus keeps contracting until the placenta is exposed. Placenta comes out with blood because the placenta has to detach from the wall of the uterus. That's uh, the part that it gets implanted. So the placenta gets detached from the wall of the uterus and that produces bleeding. But the uterus contracts quickly. And when it contracts, it closes all the blood vessels that are bleeding. And it, it, it controls the, the bleeding by itself practically. Sometimes we have to give some additional medications to help the uterus to contract better and decrease the loss of blood. And after everything comes a time that lasts about six weeks. And that's the time that the body takes to return to basal physiologic state. That's called puerperium. The uterus will return to the original size. All the fluid, the extra amount of blood volume that the mother had during the pregnancy will be eliminated. In the, first, uh, in the first 24 hours after birth, you see the mothers will urinate amazingly, like two liters of urine, which usually is one liter. And you said two liters, three liters, is where did that coming from? Well, the excess blood volume that was during the pregnancy. Um, and everything returns to normality. Although it's a dangerous time sometimes because some mothers which are not well nourished, they can have deficiencies of vitamins and immunity may be depressed and may get some infections. But if everything is taken care of well during the pregnancy, there shouldn't be a problem after, after birth. Also, the hormones that are produced by the placenta and during the pregnancy, they prepare, prepare the mammary glands for lactation. Prolactin, which is produced by the anterior pituitary gland, is the main responsible for milk production. And oxytocin helps to release that milk from the mammary glands, from the mammary ducts. The ducts are surrounded by myoepithelial cells, which respond to oxytocin and help to release the milk. And this works with a reflex called milk ejection reflex. Which consists in soon as the baby is born, it should start stimulating the nipple. Because that's a stimulus. That's a stimulus, so the oxytocin will be released and prolactin also, and in the next hours, the milk production will be uh, increasing its amount. But if there is no stimulus, if there is no stimulus, then the oxytocin and prolactin will probably not work very well. 
And then you have mothers that say they don't have milk, but maybe it's because the stimulus was not enough right after birth. It's always good. It's always the best thing to uh, get the mother's milk instead of uh, formulas. Sometimes it's not possible because of diseases of the baby or the mother condition, but uh, the physiology shows that the reflex is the way that the milk is produced. And that's based on the stimulation uh, of the nipple by the baby as soon as after birth. True milk is produced usually on the third or fourth day. Before that time, there is a fluid called colostrum. It's a cloudy fluid that doesn't look like milk. And sometimes our mothers get concerned about it. They say, this is not normal. This is not milk. So I'm not producing milk. I'm not going to give them my milk. It's not, it's not good. Well, it is good. You just have to wait. Most of these things, unfortunately, is based on uh, the education, the proper education the mothers receive before, uh, during the pregnancy and, uh, of course, before and after birth. Uh, but sometimes these things are not well explained. Um, and the other thing is that the amount of colostrum is not too much. It's just a few amount. And some mothers also get concerned. Say, That's not enough for my baby. Maybe it needs more. It keeps crying. Well, first, babies cry for everything. The baby's hungry, they cry. It's too hot, they cry. It's too cold, they cry. It's too loud outside, they cry. So it's, babies cry, and it's not only because they are hungry. But sometimes if they show a new mother, he's crying, he's hungry. Not necessarily. And besides, they see that the milk, the colostrum, is just a few amounts. And they say, well, that's not enough for my baby. It needs more. And they start giving more milk, formula. And then... The stimulus to the nipple now is less, so they won't produce milk after the fourth day. Actually, there won't be milk in enough amount. So that's a process, that's a physiologic process. Uh, as I said, sometimes it's different because of conditions of the mother or the baby, but this is usually what happens is that should be uh, instructed to the mothers um, during pregnancy. This is going to happen. And, and besides, lactation exerts another effect. It blocks the ovaries for a few months. Lactation, the production of prolactin that is constantly making the mammary gland produce milk, the prolactin is going to block the ovarian cycle. During lactation, there's no menstruation. And that is a form of birth control. But again, it's not so reliable because it depends on the frequency of lactation, uh, the levels of prolactin may vary, and all of a sudden the ovary may wake up and ovulate. Uh, they don't notice, and there comes another pregnancy. But physiologically, the prolactin during the lactation blocks the ovarian cycle for a few months. Okay, so that was all about development. Now let's see some uh, concepts of um, inheritance, genes and inheritance. Last week we had a lab on inheritance, which is very simple. It's just exercises from the exercise 45 of the lab manual. And we explained some of the concepts in the lab. The Thursday group didn't have lab last week, so we're going to do that today. 
but we're gonna display this. This is the same thing that we're gonna do in the lab. So, um, and it's, uh, the same is gonna be a good review for, uh, for the other groups. First, let's start with the concept of meiosis. Meiosis is the process by which the gametes are produced, meaning sperm cells and all sites. And the main idea or the main fact here is to remember that the human species has 46 chromosomes. 46 chromosomes that can be expressed in this way as 2N because there are 23 pairs. And the N stands for the number of chromosomes that each species will have. This is different different species. During mitosis, the cells with 46 chromosomes will just replicate. So a cell that has 46 chromosomes will give place to two daughter cells with 46 chromosomes. But in meiosis, a cell with 46 chromosomes will give place to cells with 23 chromosomes. And that's what we studied in spermatogenesis and oogenesis when we did the reproductive system. Now this number of chromosomes that we call 2N, we say the cells are diploid when they have this number of chromosomes, 2N, for the case of the human is 23 times 2. So how we get uh, the 46 chromosomes is when the ovum gets together with the sperm and we get the number of chromosomes restituted to 46 chromosomes. The sperm brings 23 and the egg brings 23. They get together and now we have 46. And the chromosomes are aligned in pairs, and we call them homologous chromosomes. This drawing, this diagram that we see here, is from a study called karyotype. A study called karyotype, what we do is get some cells from the body just in the process of mitosis where we can see the chromosomes, and we make like in the computer, we play with the pictures, we capture the images of the chromosomes and we align one next to another because the chromosome number one has a very unique shape and length. Chromosome number two also. Each pair of chromosomes will, have, will be different. So we can, you can pair them. You can pair them and, and make this uh, diagram called the karyotype. And 22 chromosomes, the pair number 23 is what we call the sex chromosomes. The sex chromosomes may be, or are two, X and Y. If it's a male, but if it's a female, there will be two X chromosomes. That's how we differentiate the sex uh, by genetics. Now, Going back to the homologous chromosomes, these chromosomes will contain the genes. The gene is just a segment of the DNA, a sequence of nucleotides. Well, the genes that the homologous chromosomes have are the same, meaning they express, they control the same traits, therefore they make the same proteins. In other words, they have the same 
the same uh, nucleotide sequence in a determined region. But the gene is the same, but the information they bring may be different. And that's what we gives the individual variation of the species. Now, the genes that are in homologous chromosomes, and they control the same traits. Let's, let's say the chromosome number one, for instance, in, the, in one of the regions in the upper arm, in the longer arm, there's a sequence that controls the color of the eyes. We know that. But that segment has different information in different chromosomes, in the homologous chromosomes. Because if uh, the mother had blonde hair and the father had brown hair, well, that information is in their genes. And when they get together, if they have kids, they will be facing each other. Genes that code for color of the eyes, but with different information. And that's what we call alleles. Genes that are facing each other in the same chromosome, but they have different information about some trait. You better see this in this diagram. We have two chromosomes, and that segment, which is showing black in one gene and red in the other gene, in the other chromosome, they are in the same area. They are in the same location of that chromosome. But they have a different sequence of, sequence of nucleotides. And that means that they contain different information, different information for that particular trait, which may be color of the eye, maybe color of the hair, maybe stature or even a disease. So each homologous chromosome will have different information about some particular trait. And we have pairs of chromosomes. So all the chromosomes that we have are in the same, in the same, in the same picture. Now, if the chromosomes if the chromosomes, they have genes that call for the same trait, but they have the same alleles, meaning they call for the same, or they contain the same information, we call them homozygous. And we use these letters to express. These letters are used to express the genotype. Genotype is the arrangement of the genes. In other words, is letters that tell you how the alleles, how the genes in each chromosome is. If we use the uppercase letter, we usually mean that that trait is dominant. And if we use a lowercase letter, that means that that trait is recessive. We'll define the dominant and recessive after. So if we have this, like, two A's, two uppercase, or two lowercase, since they are the same letters, we call them homozygous. But if we have this other arrangement, like one uppercase, one lowercase, we call it heterozygous. They are different. One is dominant, and the other gene, the other allele, is recessive. The sperm of someone who is genotype heterozygous, upper A and lower A, will be in this way. Some sperm, since they are 23 chromosomes, some of them will have 
the upper A and some others will have the lower A. And that's why they can combine with different eggs containing the same information or different information. And we see that in the different diagram. So genotype is a genetic makeup, which may be homozygous, heterozygous, dominant, or recessive, depending if it's upper or lower case letter. And phenotype, the difference with the phenotype, the phenotype is the physical characteristic or the physical appearance. That's what we see. If we see blue eyes, that's the phenotype. If we see brown eyes, that's their phenotype. And the next question is, what's the genotype of this guy who has brown eyes? Well, maybe dominant, homozygous, maybe recessive, homozygous. There's a different definition, that's the genotype. We don't usually see the genotype, we don't know. You just see the phenotype. You see the blue eyes and, okay, it's blue, but what is the genotype? I don't know. We have to make genetic studies to determine that. In this example, this example, the phenotype, yellow fur, and the genotype may be like this. The alleles coming from mother and father are both small e, which means recessive. Since they are the same, we call this recessive homozygous. But if the phenotype is black fur, then this may be a different types. The genotypes may be or upper E, lower E, or both upper E. The upper letter means dominant. And what a dominant is, a dominant gene, it means that the expression of this gene prevails over the other gene, over the allele. In this case, a small e expresses a yellow fur. This dog here has combination of both. Both will be expressed, no, only one will get expressed as phenotype. And which is the dominant? In this case, the black fur. The phenotype black fur is dominant for this genotype. And whenever we find this combination, if there is an E, upper E, well, that will prevail. The only way that the yellow fur will be expressed as phenotype is that two recessive genes get together like this. So that's the concept of genotype, phenotype, and what is dominant and what is recessive. Here we have another definition of dominant. Um, the dominant allele is that gene which phenotype or physical trait is fully expressed. And the recessive is masked. The expression is masked unless two recessive genes are together in the genetic makeup and that will allow these genes to be expressed as phenotype. So this person is called heterozygote or heterozygous. This other person is called homozygous. But they may have both the same phenotype because here we have upper P that is dominant over lower P. And in this other genetic makeup, we have two upper P's. Well, there's the only one present, so it will be expressed. So the phenotype for these two may be the same, even if the genetic makeup is different. 
Now, the alleles that code for normal traits are not always dominant. For instance, the gene, the gene that codes for six fingers on the hand is a dominant gene. How many people have six fingers in the hand? Uh, it's rare. It happens, it happens, but it's not common. That means that all of us that have five fingers in the hand is because we have two recessive genes, homozygous make up in, the, in our genetics, in our genes. So we express the five fingers. But if for some reason we get a different genetic makeup, or one of our kids, the dominant gene for that trait, they will have six fingers. So how we determine the probability of someone having kids with this or other trait or this or other disease? This is probability. It's a very simple calculation that we do making a two by two table or Punnett square. What we do is to place the genotype of both parents and we try to find out the different possible combinations. This table is very well expressed. This um, genetic makeup here is from the father and this is genetic makeup of the mother. So you see the father is heterozygous, upper A, lower A, and the mother provides eggs, heterozygous also. Some eggs are A, upper A, and some eggs are lower A. And if we just go crossing, combining across and down the table, we get the different possible combinations. If this egg combines with this sperm, then we have a zygote like this. Or in the other way, we can have this other zygote with the genetic makeup, or this one. And then finally this one. If we know that some trait is recessive and domi or dominant, and we know the genetic makeup of the parents, then we are able to establish probability that this couple will have this or that trait or disease. In this particular case, the gene expressed or the genotype, the lower case, A lower case, it expresses albinism, this disease where there is the uh, deficit of pigment in the skin. And it's recessive, so it will be only be expressed if two genes, two recesses are together, like in that genetic makeup. The other people, the other three kids, in terms of probability, all of them, they have the upper A, which is a normal gene, which is dominant. And even if two of them have the lower case, lower A gene for the albinism, it is masked by the normal gene, which is the upper A. So these other, there will be three of them that are normal, and only one out of four will have albinism. And we say it's 75 or 25 percent, 25 percent of the um, of the offspring have the chance to have this disease called albinism. So we do this in this way, we combine, but we need to know the genotype of the parents. How we get to know the genotype of the parents? Well, the study, the genetic studies go backwards. Let's say if someone has blue eyes, and we want to know, okay, go and see your mother and your father. Who has blue eyes? 
Well, my mother has blue eyes, and my father has blue eyes also. Okay, perfect. So that means that probably they are recessive. But if your mother has brown eyes, and your father has brown eyes, and you have blue eyes, where that came from? One of your parents have to be heterozygous and have the gene for the blue, recessive, which is masked in them. So we have to go back even one generation and find out where the grandfather, grandmother, which of them have blue eyes, still brown eyes. And we go back, keep going, keep going, keep going until we find somewhere and establish the different combinations. And then we get to know the genotype of the parents, which is not, not, not so simple sometimes. But it gets important when we're talking about diseases and not only uh, physical traits like the color of the hair or color of the eyes. There is a feature called incomplete dominance. Incomplete dominance, we can detect this doing the same thing. We get the genotype of the parents, like in this table, mother and father. We know that the upper R gene expresses for red petals and the small or lower R expresses the white petals. We make our table and we have this genotype, two upper R's. Both are dominant, <coughs> phenotype is red petals. But this one, recessive, two lower R together, white. But if we analyze these two, which are heterozygous, we may say, okay, this is upper R and lower R. The dominant is R, so it's red. It should be red. <coughs> but we go and see the phenotype is not red, it's pink. So there's like a mixture. The red is not expressed completely. We call that incomplete dominant. So the red is dominant, but it's not complete. It's incomplete dominant. We see this in some diseases, like there's a disease called sickle cell anemia, which uh, is a problem of uh, the red blood cells. They have a problem in the shape and they don't carry oxygen properly. And this is expressed by a gene which is recessive. So, and incomplete dominance is shown there. So if this, if we translate it in, in, term, in terms of the sickle cell anemia, the upper R will be normal, and the small R, lower R, will be the gene for the disease. There are two individuals that are heterozygous, upper R, lower R, which will have incomplete dominance. In terms of disease, it means that these people will have some symptoms of the disease, and will not have the disease fully expressed. They will have some traits, some symptoms of the disease. We see that in in this problem called sickle cell anemia. And sex-linked inheritance, again, is the same idea, the same picture, the same type of calculation, but now it's linked to the sex chromosomes. Usually X-linked, the chromosome X. And remember that XX are present, two X chromosomes are present in female and the male has one X and one Y, which is a completely different chromosome. So in this case, there are diseases and traits that are contained in the sex chromosome. In some diseases like this, uh, lower D, 
that is that, that expresses this uh, disease called Daltonism or color blindness. If we know the genotype of the parents, like this and this, XY is the the father, and the mother is XX. But look at this green X that has a superscript D, small D, and that is telling us that that genotype contains the gene for the disease. What happens if these two have kids? Well, we make the table, look for the different combinations. They will have one girl with the genotype XX, and the gene for the disease is not present here, so this girl will be normal. They will have another girl, but this girl will have one normal X and the other X containing the disease, the gene for the disease. So these girls will be carriers because in this case the normal gene is dominant. They will not let the disease, the gene for the disease be expressed. And well, that's what we call a carrier. Doesn't have the disease but is carrying the gene. Then they have a boy which is normal, XY, and Another boy with the genotype XDY. So this boy has the gene for the disease in the chromosome X. And since this guy has only one chromosome X, nothing will oppose to that gene, and that gene will be expressed, fully expressed, as a disease. And this boy will have the defect or the disease, 25%. So you see that we do basically the same thing. We just consider that these genes are in the X chromosomes and, and uh, we have to determine if male and female, how many of them are male, female, with or without the disease. This is another, this case is for people with hemophilia. Hemophilia is a disease of the coagulation of the blood. The blood does not coagulate properly. <coughs> And it's linked to the sex chromosomes, the X chromosome. In this particular case, if we analyze what would happen if a mother who is defined as a carrier because in one chromosome X has a normal gene and the other chromosome X has the abnormal gene with the superscript H, small or lowercase, and the father has hemophilia because the gene for the disease is in the X chromosome. And there's only one X chromosome, so that will be fully expressed. This guy has the disease, has hemophilia. But the mother is a carrier. She doesn't have the disease, but is carrying the gene for the disease. Then we have the different combinations. They will have one daughter, which will be a carrier as a mother. They will have a daughter with hemophilia, because it will, she will have both X chromosomes with both of them containing the gene for the disease. And the boys, one of them will be unaffected. Lucky that got the normal X from the mother and normal Y from the father. And the other possible combination is a son with hemophilia because it has the X chromosome with the gene for the disease. And we get to this doing the two by two table as we did in the previous uh, analysis. Other problems of inheritance are chromosome problems, like in the division 
and meiosis, when the chromosomes are distributed to both um, gametes, there may be an imbalance and more chromosomes will be given uh, to some cells. If they combine with the egg, then there will have, we will have a, a case of trisomy. And the best example of trisomy is the trisomy of the chromosome 21, also known as Down syndrome. So when we make this analysis, we focus on the chromosome 21 and we will find three copies of the chromosome, not two. We will find three of them. They will interact in different ways and will express different characteristics, the characteristics of a Down syndrome. There are different, there are different um, problems trisomy of the chromosome 18, or the chromosome 4, the different ways of chromosomic abnormalities that will give different, sometimes complicated cases of many defects and many problems uh, because of this interaction. Now, going back to inheritance, most of the times we see this polygenic inheritance. What it means, it means that the phenotype for many traits that we have, they are not just located in two chromosomes. They are located in more than two chromosomes. Like, if someone has a disease, the genes for that disease may be found in the chromosome one, in the chromosome two, and the chromosome five. Three different chromosomes will contain the gene for that disease. And that's what we call polygenic inheritance. Many genes determine some particular traits. And uh, other thing is sometimes the genetic traits are one thing, but for the phenotype to be expressed, we have to take in account the environmental factors. Like if a person gets genes for being tall, full height will be reached only with proper nutrition. So even if they have the genes, if they don't get nutrition, they won't reach the programmed stature for that person. So that's, that counts for environmental uh, problem. And neural tube defects that are expressed for certain genes, they can be more common if the mothers don't have a proper supply of this vitamin, folic acid, during the pregnancy. Okay, so the exercises of the, uh, the 45, exercise 45 in the lab manual, that's what we do in the lab. And we have more questions in the lab, we can uh, work that together. All right.